0: all you guys and i send it send it to them but i want to do something different this time can we go live okay let's try it let's see if this works i've never done it before so we'll see let's see if it works (laughs) all right we're connected so here we go you guys ready so I'll introduce you guys, and then you guys say hi, Mom, when I give you the cue. Is that cool? Yeah. All right. I think, uh, let's see if I can get this to work. Three, two, one. Hi, Mom. Hi, Facebook people. Here we are. This woo! <laughs> This is the class spring 2017. So here they are, you guys. Let's, Say hi, Mom! Yes! Yes! This is how we do it at St. George's University! Woo! All right, you guys are awesome. (laughs) We'll see how that goes. (laughs) Thanks, I appreciate that. All right, here we go, let's get rolling. I'm always nervous the first lecture I give to you guys, so I don't know why, but that helps me break the ice a little bit All right, so let's get going Here's your objectives, make sure you follow those Remember that everybody's got objectives for your lectures, so just make sure you're aware of them Alright, so what we're talking about today is uh, we're going to start to introduce you into this sort of molecular biology stuff, the DNA stuff Um, through the next few sessions with me. And we're going to start off today's lecture on nucleic acids. And nucleic acids have a number of functions. I'm going to tell you about a few of them. Uh, with me, and then later on in the course, some of the other biochemists are going to come on and show you how these nucleic acids provide energy sources for different reactions and second messengers. So for the most part, though, what I'm going to be talking to you about for the next few sessions is how these nucleic acids provide a storage site. This is the DNA in most organisms um, that carries the hereditary material that gets passed on To the next generation and from this storage site typically the DNA we can express genes into another form of nucleic acid the RNA and this will ultimately get translated by the ribosome to make protein which does all the stuff in the cell um, nucleic acids also uh, can provide energy sources like ATP, most people are aware of that, GTP in the case of protein synthesis. So you'll see this a little bit later on in this course. And nucleic acids can also uh, be second messengers, which are molecules that allow sort of um, communication from the outside of the cell through the cytoplasm and down into the nucleus. And you'll see this a little bit later on when you go over things like signaling and such. So let's kind of get into it. So this diagram at the top describes what we call the central dogma of molecular biology. And what it describes is the transmission of information from this storage site, typically the DNA, and how this molecule gets... Uh, copied or recreated into another form the RNA and then ultimately this is going to lead to the proteins in the cell so what we're going to be talking about over the next little while is how that hereditary material is replicated after every cell division and passed on to the next generation for as well and this is a process called replication we'll do a little bit of that today perhaps Um, And then this hereditary material, when it's moving down towards the protein here, we have to undergo a process called transcription, where the RNA is read by some polymerase enzymes, and we make a a second molecule called the RNA. We have a number of different RNAs, and only one of them is read by the ribosome to make protein, that's the messenger RNA. And this uh, transformation from uh, the RNA, messenger RNA, to the protein is called translation. You'll see some other roles of RNA in the cell in a few minutes. And then we'll only talk a little bit briefly but there's some viruses and there's one example in eukaryotes where we have this reverse information flow from RNA to DNA and this is called reverse transcription. So most organisms like us, for example, use double-stranded DNA, it's a polymer of nucleic acids found in our nucleus, in the case of eukaryotes, and this is the uh, major hereditary material for most organisms. We've got some viruses, though, that have either uh, RNA, which is a single-stranded nucleic acid polymer, or they may also have single-stranded DNA as the hereditary material. So let's start about how do we build these long polymers, these RNA and DNA molecules. So we gotta start off with the building blocks, and the monomeric unit for building a nucleic acid polymer is the nucleotide and it contains three major components the first one here is a nitrogenous heterocyclic base so this is this component right here and essentially what we're what we mean by heterocyclic is that it will have nitrogen in place of uh, carbon in that ring structure and the base can either be a single ring structure or a double ring structure like you see here And we'll differentiate those in a few minutes There's also the pentose sugar right here um, And this is different depending on whether we're building an RNA molecule or a DNA molecule And the difference is only at this position right here Whether there's an OH group or a hydrogen in that position number two or carbon number two and then lastly, we have a phosphoric acid group here linked to the five prime carbon on our pentose sugar. And together, this is our monomeric unit to build these long nucleic acid polymers, DNA and RNA, uh, when they get synthesized. Now if you look at these, uh, look at this monomeric unit, the nucleotide, we can have different heterocyclic ring structures, and these are the purines. And the pyrimidines. The pyrimidines are the most simple. They have a single ring structure here, a six member ring. And there's only slight modifications to this six member ring that give it the different uh, base structure. So the pyrimidines include cytosine, thymine, C and T in DNA, and uracil, which we see in RNA. The purines. Little bit more complex. These are a double ring structure. So we've got a six-member ring fused to a five-member ring And the members there are the A and the G adenine and guanine So if you're looking at uh, DNA sequences or RNA sequences, they're quite easy to distinguish from each other Because if it contains a U, it's RNA, and if it contains a T in the sequence, it's a DNA You don't have to memorize these structures at all. We don't have to, you don't have to worry about that. But be aware of the two different uh, groups, the purines and the pyrimidines, of what their members are. All right. Now we've got some unusual bases as well. And these are bases that have slight modifications to them. And uh, in the case of DNA, one of them that's very important is this one right here, 5-methylcytosine. We're going to talk about this a little bit later in this class and as I continue through. This modified base um, affects gene regulation. If a gene contains a lot of methylated Cs, the gene tends to be shut off. And if the genes are unmethylated, then it tends to at least be available to be expressed. There's some other ones as well, 6-methyl-A, 2-methyl-G, 5 hydroxymethyl C. These are other ones, but they're less prominent and less well understood in how they regulate gene expression and how they regulate how proteins bind to the DNA structure to modulate gene expression. And then, in a couple of RNA molecules, the tRNAs, which are the transfer RNAs, these ones deliver the amino acid to the ribosome during translation. And ribosomal RNA or rRNA, this assembles with proteins to build the ribosome machine that reads the messenger RNA and produces a polypeptide from that. They have modified bases as well, and this is involved in enzyme tRNA recognition. When uh, a tRNA is initially formed, we've got to charge that tRNA with an amino acid, and some of these bases are involved in the enzyme that does that, Recognizing the appropriate tRNA and adding the appropriate amino acid, for example All right The next part is the sugar, and we've got two forms of that We have a ribose sugar, and we find this within RNA molecules And we have a deoxyribose, we find that in DNA And the only thing that differentiates these two Is the presence or absence of an OH group On Carbon 2 of the pentose sugar. So the ribose that we see in RNA has an OH Whereas the deoxyribose just as the name implies here only has a hydrogen at carbon 2 Everybody okay so far? Yeah, high school stuff, huh? Alright, uh, all right. now there's, with regards to this, this monomeric unit There's two other sort of terminologies you need to be aware of And this is a nucleoside, the difference between a nucleoside and a nucleotide And this will be important because we're going to talk about some drugs That occur in both of these forms uh, in a few minutes here the, A nucleoside consists of the base plus the pentose sugar A nucleotide consists of the base, the pentose sugar, and a phosphate group. Okay, So the nucleosides don't have any phosphates attached to position 5 of the pentose sugar. Now, there's a little bit of a terminology here, because true chemists don't like the terms nucleoside and nucleotide, particularly nucleotide, because it actually doesn't describe very much. We know that there's going to be a phosphate there, But the nucleotide that's used to build these uh, nucleic acid polymers has to be in the triphosphate form. It has to have three phosphate groups attached to that position 5 carbon. Now, the way true chemists describe these nucleotides is whether they have one phosphate, two phosphates, or three phosphates. So the true terminology, if there's only one phosphate, it's a ribonucleoside monophosphate, ribonucleoside diphosphate. It could be a deoxy, a deoxy as well, right? If it's a case of a DNA going into DNA. Um, so be aware of that, right? You may see these different terminologies if you're reading stuff. So be aware that, um, you know, if it's a nucleoside and then it has a phosph- monophosphate diphosphate a triphosphate, we're talking about a nucleotide, okay, for your purposes, all right? So we've talked about how these nucleoside triphosphates now, so those are the ones that are the actual building blocks, the ones that have the three phosphate groups. These ones can be the precursors to synthesize double-stranded DNA or single-stranded RNA molecules. And then we've got these triphosphates that are involved in biosynthesis. So most people are aware of ATP. This is one of the universal energy sources in the cell, right? Uh, GTP, you'll see a little bit later on I think next week how GTP is used as the energy source for protein synthesis And then we've got UTP and CTP that are involved in uh, the synthesis of other uh, biomolecules All right, so let's see how this is all put together then so you've seen the monomeric units How they attach themselves to each other to make these long polymer molecules is by the formation of what we call a phosphodiester bond. All right? So if you look at how this is working here, um, on the three-prime carbon of each of these triphosphates is this OH group. The OH group and the incoming nucleoside triphosphate form a phosphodiester bond between the phosphoric acid group at the five-prime position. And the 3 OH in the previously incorporated nucleotide. So if I was going to add another base on the end of here, we'd have a nucleoside triphosphate coming in. You can see when at the phosphodiester bond, there's only one phosphate left. And what that indicates to you is that we lost two phosphates when this phosphodiester bond was created. And I'll, I'll show you more detail about that later. One other important concept while well, I have this diagram up here is this concept of endedness. Nucleic acid polymers have ends and they're called the 5 prime end and the 3 prime end. The 5 prime end is characterized by the presence of a phosphate group at position 5. The 3 prime end is characterized by the presence of the OH group in position 3. When we're building nucleic acid molecules, we're always building on the 3' end. We're utilizing this 3' OH group to form a phosphodiester bond within, with an incoming nucleotide. Okay, You'll see this over and over again. So this is what it looks like. Here we have a DNA template. This is what the DNA polymerase is going to read to determine whether, which base it needs to incorporate as it's doing the synthesis. So here we have a nucleotide that's already been incorporated into the growing strand, and we're going to bring in this nucleoside triphosphate to form our phosphodiester bond with the 3'OH group and the 5' phosphate of the incoming nucleotide. In this reaction we're going to cleave off two phosphate groups. This is what we call pyrophosphate. And in doing so, the remaining phosphate is going to form a phosphodiester bond between the 3 prime carbon and the 5 prime carbon of the incoming nucleotide. This synthesis process is conducted by two enzymes, DNA polymerase in the case of DNA replication. And RNA polymerase in the case of transcription. There is one other enzyme that does form a phosphodiester bond in the cell, and this is the enzyme ligase. Now, in the previous, whoops, in the previous slide, there's no energy source indicated to make this. Uh, phosphodiester bond and that's because the cleavage of the triphosphate removing this pyrophosphate serves as the energy source in this case here in the case of ligase what ligase does is it forms a phosphodiester bond between a three prime OH group and a nucleoside monophosphate now here there's no energy source by cleaving off pyrophosphate So it needs an energy source and it utilizes ATP as that energy source You're going to see this ligase. It comes about um, During DNA replication as well by joining together small DNA segments called Okazaki fragments that are formed during the replication process And we'll get to that um, in a couple of lectures All right so there was a lot of back in the old days. People were trying to figure out how, you know, what was the hereditary material, and, and uh, started the really this whole field. And um, at the time, there was a few candidates. You know, they thought maybe fats, proteins, RNAs, DNAs could potentially be the hereditary material. And it all started off with this guy here, Erwin Shargaff. And what he did was he took DNA from a whole bunch of different organisms, hydrolyzed it down to its uh, nucleotides, and analyzed the nucleotide content. And what he found was that no matter what he looked at, there was always an equal amount of A and T and C and G and this is what's called Shargaff's rule and this is one of the fundamental concepts that led Watson and Crick to start to assemble their model of the DNA So if because a and T are always equal to each other and C and G are always equal to each other if we give you the Amount of one of the nucleotides like a here, which is 35% It's very easy to figure out the content of of the other nucleotides. So T is going to equal A, so we've got 35 and 35, and then all we have left is 30%, so you split that equally between C and G. And that's how you can uh, answer those types of questions. All right. Now, uh, while this time was going along, so Shargaff had his rule. Rosalind Franklin was looking at x-ray crystallography structures in in a laboratory, and Watson and Crick kind of went and stole her data. And they got together one night and put this model together, and ultimately they won the Nobel Prize for it. So let's kind of take a look at what they put together here. This is a a schematic of our double-stranded DNA, which is the hereditary material for most organisms. It consists of two strands of DNA, two single strands of DNA held together in a right-handed double helix. So here's one strand shown in red, and here's another strand in shown in red. These two chains are in orientation what we call antiparallel. If you look at the ends, this is what I mean. So here's a five prime end, and we follow it down, right? Will lead to our three prime end. Five prime end as the phosphate. 3 prime end has the OH group. On the other strand it starts at the 3 prime end and runs down to the 5. So they're running in opposite directions. Okay? It's an important concept to know because this is going to come back to you with DNA replication. All right? On the back here, this is where we have our sugar phosphate backbone, so that's where our pentose sugar and our phosphoric acid group are found. So that would be where the red bit is here in this diagram. And in the middle, here is where we have our bases, down the central core of this helix. These bases are hydrogen bonded together, and there's a distinct difference between the hydrogen bonding between A and T and G and C. A and T have two hydrogen bonds that hold them together whereas G and C have three hydrogen bonds. And what this does is it means that gc base pairing is much stronger than AT-based pairing. And you're going to see a little bit later when we talk about the initiation of DNA replication, where replication starts in our genome is in a region that's very AT-rich, and it's easy to separate those strands. All right, so this is what we call complementary base pairing and you'll see uh, when we do the replication this is one of the features that allows one of the strands of DNA to serve as a template to synthesize another strand because of this complementary base pairing rule. So if we know about know that A and T and G and C always match together then if I give you one DNA strand you can automatically figure out what the other DNA strand is, right, by this complementary base pairing. So usually, by convention, we always write DNA sequences 5' to 3'. So I might give you something like this, for example, and then all you do is you do the complementary base pairing to match up to to build the other strand, keeping in mind that the other strand is going to be anti-parallel, right? Be careful about that. All right, make sure there's always a 5 and a 3, a 3 and a 5 when you're looking at this. People get a little messed up sometimes. Last little bit, not so important here, but uh, let's see. We've got base pairs are 0.34 nanometers apart, and a whole turn is 3.4, na- 3.4 nanometers. So that means there's about 10 bases per rotation or ter- per turn of this helix. This is completely irrelevant to you, except that you'll be able to dazzle your friends at bananas this weekend. Because if you put this all together, we've got 6 times 10 to the ninth base pairs in every human cell. And they are 0.34 times 10 to the minus 9 meters apart. You put this all together, that means we've got about 2 meters of DNA in each one of our nuclei. You'll see... When I do the DNA packaging lecture, this is a really big molecule to fit into our nucleus. So we've got all kinds of neat proteins that package up the DNA and enzymes that tighten up the DNA to get it inside that nucleus. We'll cover that in the next lecture. All right, last but not least here, um, there are two grooves within the double helix. We have this groove right here right here. And right here, this is what we call the major groove. And then there's another groove right here we call the minor groove. And this is important to know because it's at the major groove that uh, proteins typically bind to the DNA. So proteins that are involved in initiating replication, transcription, modulating gene expression, bind to the DNA within these major grooves. All right, so that's the Watson and Crick uh, Crick story here. Has anybody ever read the paper? Anybody here? One? Couple. Yeah, it's really boring. I don't blame you guys for not reading it. It's a it's, it's a short. it's a two-page. You're really boring with all these sort of details. Um, and they want a million bucks for it, but people often think they want a million bucks for showing the structure. But the reality is they won the million bucks for this sentence here. And this is like one of the last sentences in the paper. And it says, It has not escaped our notice that the specific pairing that we have postulated immediately suggests a possible copying mechanism for the genetic material. This is what they won the million bucks for. Because this showed that this molecule had the ability to self-replicate itself. And that's a requirement for the hereditary material. Alright. How are we doing so far, guys? Alright? Not going too fast? Too slow? You know it all already? Yeah. Alright. So let's look at some other characteristics of DNA. These are All, gonna, all these little characteristics are going to come back a little bit later on. And what I'm going to tell you about now will come back when you start going over the, the molecular biology techniques. And this characteristic here is melting or denaturation of DNA. Um... And what this describes is the breaking of the hydrogen bonds between the bases to take a double-stranded DNA and separate it into two single strands. Okay? Um, we call this the melting temperature, and this is where 50% of the DNA strands have been separated into single-stranded DNA. And it's dependent on a few things. It's dependent on GC content, which makes sense, right? Because GCs have three hydrogen bonds. And ATs have two hydrogen bonds. So the more GC, the higher the melting temperature, right? There's also ionic influences. The higher the ionic concentration in the solution, the harder to separate and break those hydrogen bonds. Now, um, in cells, these strand separation is accomplished by enzymes. We'll talk about those when we talk about DNA replication. We also use this property for a bunch of molecular biology techniques when we produce uh, single-stranded DNA probes to do things like genotyping, genetic analysis, mutation analysis and such. And Dr. May will tell you about those uh, shortly. The other feature so we can separate the hydrogen bonds by, uh, and produce single-stranded DNA from double-stranded DNA. The other thing can happen is the opposite thing, which is called annealing or renaturation. And this is the formation of hydrogen bonds between two single-stranded DNAs. And in this diagram, we have two, two pieces of DNA, identical sequence. We can denature them. In the laboratory, we denature double-stranded DNA by essentially boiling it, bringing it up to about 95 degrees Celsius. Um, in the cell, this is accomplished enzymatically. All right, so we can separate the strands, and as long as the denaturation conditions exist, they'll stay in that state. But if we reduce, reduce the temperature, for example, to room temperature, if we're in the lab, those single strands will spontaneously re Reforming those hydrogen bonds and they're going to reform those hydrogen bonds again by this complementary base pair rule All right now we don't have the same strands reforming, but it doesn't matter. They've got the same sequence, right? All right if We've also got some other different types of DNA and this is based on their secondary structure what I've described to you here is what's b- called BDNA and this is the Watson and Crick model here. This is the most biologically relevant uh, Sort of structure of DNA. We also see another one called ZDNA or ZDNA depending on where you're from and this is uh, also uh, a left-handed helix so it's opposite to the BDNA which is right-handed and this tends to be in regions of the genome that have repetitive sequences you know, sequences repeated over and over again, and it appears to be involved in gene regulation. And you can see how much more compacted this Z DNA region here is compared to our B DNA. We also have an A DNA, no biological relevance here, right-handed, just like Watson-Crick DNA. Um, but we see this when we dehydrate DNA, and we, so this is really only a laboratory phenomenon. All right, now we can build on these, sort of describe DNA in different ways. The first one here is what we call our primary structure here. And this primary structure, when we talk about DNA, is the sequence itself. All right, and as I mentioned, we always represent DNA sequences by listing them five prime to three prime. This is the output you'd get from a DNA sequencer. All right. The secondary structure is when it assembles into our double helix, which I just just described to you. Tertiary structure is when the double helix is exposed to various enzymes that introduce what is called supercoiling. And what I mean by supercoiling, the best way to describe it is by this diagram right here. Now, you guys have never seen one of these, but... Back in the old day, we used to have these phones that plugged into the wall. And they have these coiled handsets. And for some reason, no matter what you did, these handsets would always coil up upon themselves and form these, what what I am calling, super coils. So super coils is DNA sort of wrapped around itself in a very tight coiling. This is accomplished by various enzymes we'll talk about in the next section. And then lastly, quaternary structure is where DNA interacts with various proteins. Uh, the primary ones are called histone proteins, and this is involved in packaging the DNA to get it into that nucleus. All right, we'll get to that as well. So, we talked about the DNA. The next thing is our RNA molecules. These are also nucleic acid polymers, typically single stranded molecules. So, the first one here mRNA or messenger RNA. This is the one that contains the information that's going to be read by the ribosome to make a protein. It's a single-stranded linear molecule. Not very abundant in the cell. You'd think it'd be more abundant, right? But That's only about 2% of the total population of RNA. Then we have tRNA or transfer RNA. This one forms an unusual stem loop type of structure. You see it right here. And this structure forms because the RNA itself, even though when it's synthesized, it's in single-stranded form, there is internal complementarity. There's complementarity within that single strand that allows it to form hydrogen bonding on itself and form this sort of cloverleaf type of a structure. The tRNA is the one where the amino acid gets attached to by various enzymes. And this is the uh, RNA that delivers the amino acid to the ribosome when the ribosome is reading the mRNA and beginning to synthesize a protein. It's about 17% or 16% of total RNA. Then we have rRNA or ribosomal RNA. This is the most abundant RNA in the cell, it also uh, forms a folded molecule, and it combines with ribosomal proteins to make the ribosome machine. This is what reads the mRNA and synthesizes a polypeptide all right so here 's their structure again right here so here 's our tRNAs because of that in- internal complementarity. we get this uh, stem loop type of structure. one region of the stem loop ha- contains the anticodon this Uh, Binds with the mRNA that's being translated into protein and the other end here the three prime end is where our amino acids Going to be attached to Then the ribosomal RNA forms together with proteins to make the ribosome itself We've also got some other RNAs these are the small nuclear RNAs these are involved in things like splicing of the messenger RNA after it's Um, transcribed. Initially in eukaryotes, when mRNA gets transcribed, it contains protein and non-protein coding regions. These are the so-called introns and exons. And these small nuclear RNAs are involved in that splicing process. I think we'll talk about that on Monday. And we also have another one here, microRNAs or miRNAs. These are involved in gene regulation. We'll talk about this in a bit more detail as well But these small RNAs bind to a protein called RISC Which then uh, targets a particular mRNA And it may either degrade the mRNA Or block that mRNA from being translated by the ribosome So it's a form of gene regulation Either allowing or preventing translation of a messenger RNA Okay now that that's out of the way, let's get to the clinically relevant stuff here. And these are the so-called nucleoside and nucleotide analog drugs. Um, and here's one of them here. This is AZT. So on all of these diagrams, just so to orient you here, I'm going to show you the normal nucleotide. In this case, it's a nucleoside. And I'm going to show you the drug. Okay, so just be aware of that. So here's deoxythymidine. It's a nucleoside, no phosphate group, right? And here's AZT. This is used to treat HIV infections. Now remember, when we're synthesizing a nucleic acid polymer, we're building from that 3'OH group, right? We've got a 3'OH group, and then the incoming nucleotide triphosphate forms a phosphodiester bond with that 3'OH group and the phosphoric acid group of the incoming nucleotide. So if this gets incorporated into a growing DNA, for example, it's okay, it's got a 3'OH group. We can add another nucleotide onto that, right? However, if AZT gets incorporated into a uh, growing DNA strand, this will halt DNA synthesis. And it will halt DNA synthesis because we have no 3'OH prime oh group there it's called a chain terminator all right now initially this drug is given as a prodrug it's a nucleoside and i told you that the actual building block to build a nucleic acid polymer is always the nucleoside mono or sorry triphosphate it needs to have those three phosphate groups right so when we administer this drug, we administer it as a nucleoside however there are kinase enzymes within our cells that are going to phosphorylate this nucleoside and put it into its triphosphate form and now this AZT triphosphate is able to incorporate into the growing HIV DNA and when it does it will halt synthesis of that HIV DNA right. Now, the common question, I'll take care of it right now, is, well, isn't this going to affect our other cells, like our cells, right, instead of the HIV DNA replication? And the answer is yes. However, the structure of all of these drugs is such that it tends to like the viral polymerases better than ours. They have a greater affinity for the viral polymerases than human DNA polymerase. So they're going to hang out here with viral reverse transcriptase and be utilized by that enzyme, but utilized less readily by human DNA polymerase. Okay? So there is an effect, but it is minimized because of this difference in affinity to the, the, both enzymes. Here's another one. This is didanosine. This is another one uh, for HIV. And as you know, HIV treatment typically involves a cocktail of these chain terminators. Didanosine, again, is a nucleoside. It's lacking that 5' phosphate. And if you look at position 3, where our OH group should normally be, again, you can see it's missing an OH group. Here, we're completely missing the OH group. In AZT, we have an azido group there, right? Which can't form a phosphodiester bond either. Again, the host cell kinases are going to phosphorylate this nucleoside after we administer it, putting it into the triphosphate form so it can be incorporated into the uh, synthesis of HIV DNA. And again, once it gets incorporated, Synthesis will halt because we cannot add another nucleotide because of the lack of our OH group there. Okay. Again, it's going to terminate synthesis of HIV DNA. Everybody okay so far? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it depends. It depends. Yeah. Some of them will sort of. Uh, take over some of our machinery, but most of them have their own reverse transcriptase. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It'll affect human DNA replication a bit. Yeah, replication of, this, of our human cells, yeah. But again, because of this infinity thing, it's less. You know, there's always side effects, right? Yeah. Here's another one here. This is for herpes virus, and the drug here is acyclovir. Again, it's a nucleoside. And in this case here, we have an open ring structure where the pentose sugar should be. So there's not even a three prime carbon in this molecule, right? Now, this one is really neat because it's a nucleoside, but because of its structure, our host cell kinases cannot add the first phosphate group. So it relies on the viral kinases to do this. So the viral kinase adds the first phosphate group, making it a monophosphate, and then our host cell kinases add the other two. And now it can, be, it can act as a chain terminator for herpes virus uh, synthesis, DNA synthesis. This is neat because what it essentially does is it makes it specific for cells that are infected by herpes virus. It requires the virus kinases to phosphorylate that molecule first before it can actually be utilized. So it's really kind of a a neat one, I think. Here's another one here. This is tenofovir, another HIV treatment as well. Um, again, this one has an open ring structure where the pentose sugar should be, so there's no 3'OH group again. This is a nucleotide analog. Right? It's got one phosphate group, and just as many of the others, once it's administered as a monophosphate, the host cell kinases are going to add the two remaining phosphates. So now we have tenofovir triphosphate, and it can now be incorporated into to the synthesis of HIV DNA. And again, if it gets incorporated, termination will occur. All right, here's another one, just to be for completeness here. Cytosine arabinicide. This is for um, various leukemias here. So this is where we're actually um, affecting uh, our cells. All right? Um, so the side. now this is a funny one because if you look at cytosine arabinicide, it's got an OH group there. Yet it still behaves like the others as a chain terminator. And the reason is this. If you look at normal cytosine, there's no OH group in position 2 sticking up in the top here. Cytosine arabinicide has that OH group. And what happens is this OH group repels this OH group So it's sticking out in the wrong position. It's present, but it's stuck out and not able to properly form a phosphodiester bond. All right. So be cautious of that one. Right? It's a little bit of a tricky one. The OH is there, but it's not in the right place. It's it's sticking out on the side, and it does the polymerases can't utilize it. All right. Uh, here's another one. is just like uh, cytosine arabicide. We have adenosine arabicide. Again, it's got an OH group in position two that's going to push the three-prime OH group to the side and uh, prevent it from being able to form a phosphodiester bond. Again, this is another, uh, can be used as a cancer treatment here for leukemia. We can also use this for uh, age, uh, uh, herpes. All right, And we have different forms, right? So some cases, you know, some types of treatment, one form may work better than another form. All right. How we doing? All right. Last one here. This is a little bit of a tricky one. So this isn't, a, this is an, isn't antiviral, and it isn't anti-cancer. Um, and this is uh, 5-azacitidine or decitabine, which is 5-aza-2-deoxycitidine. And remember I talked about that modified base, 5-methylcytosine? Right? 5-methylcytosine typically or has a methyl group in position 5 of the base. Okay? And it's involved in gene regulation. If there's lots of methylated Cs, the gene gets shut off. If there's not very many methylated Cs, the gene's available for expression. Now, we can alter gene expression using these two drugs because they have a nitrogen in position 5, okay? And we cannot add a methyl group to this position, all right? So uh, if these bases, these drugs get incorporated into our DNA, they can prevent the enzyme, which is, DNA methyltransferase from conducting this reaction and adding a methyl group. So they act as demethylating agents. They also directly interfere with the the DNA methyltransferase enzyme themselves. So if you use these drugs, it's going to cause a decrease in DNA methylation and potentially activate the expression of certain genes. Does that make sense? Let me show you an example here. So here's an example, this is the P15 tumor suppressor gene. And tumor suppressor genes, when they're expressed, act as regulators to the cell cycle. They put the brake on the cell cycle and keep the cell in um, G1 when it's doing its job. All right? Now, and if they're not expressed, what we find is that one of the things that cancer is characteristic of is that we don't express P15. So if we look at certain tumors, we see that this P15 is shut off when it should normally be turned on. And if we analyze the DNA sequence, we often find that the gene has become heavily methylated. There's lots of methyl cytosines. All right? So... If this P15 is hypermethylated, there's transcriptional silencing and we get uncontrolled cell division. Okay, That's cancer. We can apply decitabine, which is going to cause DNA hypomethylation. It's going to remove the methyl groups from the P15 gene. The P15 gene will get expressed again and the cell cycle will become regulated, and that will stop the cancer. Does that make sense? Everybody's okay? Because it's gonna stop the cell from dividing. It's gonna regulate the cell cycle. Because cancer is uncontrolled cell replication, right? And P15, when it's expressed, regulates the cell, and and stops it from dividing. Yeah. So by applying this drug, we've taken off the methylation. p15 gets expressed again. Yep. Yeah. Uh, that's a good. That's a very good question. Yes, potentially that's the case. Um, and and this is why this drug is a little bit tricky too. Because we could easily turn genes on that might cause cancer, too. You know, it's like all drugs. We've got to apply them and see what happens sometimes. Titrate them. OK, we got some clickers, and I'll let you go for a little break. Is polling open? It is open. OK. I'm getting used to this new cloud system I think it shuts off by itself At some point I think you're given 72 seconds According to the dean of basic science now how many are there of you guys 600 and something 500 and something Any idea how I shut it off? <laughs> Which one? Do I press that one? Nope. Repull, no. Hide responses. Countdown timer. No. Mm. Stop pulling? Just do that? Let's try it. Nope. That didn't work. Hmm. Just click the screen? Okay, that let's try that. Yes. Hey. Oh, you guys are. Right. Right. So the member, the purines have the two-membered ring, right? Is that right? Yeah. And the pyrimidines have the single-membered ring. So they're going to have, of course, the largest molecular weight. And these are just members of the group, right? So very, very good. All right, let's try another one. I hope you guys, I hope you guys uh, remember this one because we only talked about it 30 seconds ago. Did I give it away? Maybe. I'll check my Facebook while you guys are doing that. See if people are talking about you guys. Well, 23 likes, 3 comments, 79 views, and growing. Very good. (laughs) That was fun. All right, let's check it out. I know you guys will get this one. It's an easy one, right? Yay! What happened, you guys? Come on, we only talked about this 30 seconds ago. Of course, it's Tabbin, so we're talking about uh, changing the methylation of the DNA by applying these drugs. And of course, the other ones are antivirals or anti-cancers. All right, so we'll take a little break and we'll start back up at 4 o'clock. Boss, do it. <laughs> hey.